Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. July 4th is Sunday, which means there will be celebration Saturday, Sunday, and Monday this year. City Lights senior producer Kim Droves has some suggestions for Independence Holiday Fun in various Atlanta area locations as we'll hear later in the program. Also, we'll listen back to what's become a July 4th holiday tradition on City Lights. New York Times award-winning food writer Kim Severson on the all-American hot dog and delicious summer treats. First, Gorgeous scenery in nearby mountains alive with the sound of music. Each summer, as temperatures rise and the humidity increases in Atlanta, the mountains of Western Carolina offer relief from the heat as well as gorgeous scenery. And there's a soundtrack for that visual splendor, namely the Highlands Cashers Chamber Music Festival. The events begin on Monday, July 5th with a stellar lineup. Emory University professor and pianist Will Ransom is the artistic director of the festival. He joins us now via Zoom. Will, welcome back to City Life. Thank you, Lois. I'm delighted to be here and to share something that's a little bit outside the city. Uh, indeed, but not too far. In fact, a rather quick drive when you think about all that's offered. There's an expression, life begins at 40. This is the festival's 40th season. Congratulations. Thank you. I actually hadn't even thought of that wonderful saying, but uh, that's exciting for me to think about in terms of the future of the festival, because the first 40 have been pretty amazing. Well, please tell us how has the festival evolved? Well, it was founded 40 years ago and, and a couple of years before that with just a few independent concerts in the area by Dr. Lucas Drew who is a marvelous bassist. He was uh, considered the Dean of American Bassists for a long time, (laughs) based in South Florida, uh, played in the Florida Philharmonic forever and taught at all the schools there. And Lucas had a childhood home near Highlands and always loved the area. If anyone has uh, ever been there, who's listening, they know what a magical place that whole area is, and especially the plateau. And so one summer, he got a few of his friends together and decided to put on a concert in the Episcopal Church, uh, right on Main Street in Highlands, beautiful historic building. It was such a success, and there was such a great turnout from the community that they started immediately thinking about putting together an ongoing festival uh, of some kind. And so 40 years ago, a board was formed and the first season I think was maybe a week or or two weeks and the festival was born and it has gone from there and just 
grown over those years so, so well and in such an exciting way. And I was named Lucas's successor in 1999 when he retired and have been guiding us ever since then. My goodness. Well, last year, the pandemic forced cancellation of your events. With this year's concerts in person, what protocols will be in place? We are going in large part, in main part, by the CDC and the state of North Carolina's recommendations, which are now uh, pretty open. And so we are asking that our guests be vaccinated, and if they're not vaccinated, asking them to wear a mask uh, in the concerts. But our uh, capacity is full. Uh, the venues are, are beautifully intimate and small. One holds about 220 and the other, well, the other is a new one and also about 220. But there's plenty of space and we are planning to have a, a full-on live concert season. We did ask all of our musicians to be vaccinated because we thought that was important for our guests to feel completely comfortable and safe coming to concerts. Your creative vision never remained static, Will. Beyond the safety protocols, what distinguishes this summer's event? Well, since it's our 40th anniversary, we've really pulled out all the stops, and we have some incredible new musicians making their debuts at the festival, as well as some favorites from over the years. And we're kicking off on July the 5th with a special one-time-only concert. We usually do pairs of concerts, the same program, both in Highlands and then the next day in Cashers, because the two communities, although only about 25 minutes apart, are completely separate. But we'll have the Pincus Zuckerman Trio joining us for our grand opening. He's coming with his wife, the brilliant cellist Amanda Forsyth, and a young phenom who's one of their new protégés, George Lee, incredible pianist. Indeed. And they're going to do an amazing program for us of Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky. wonderful highlights coming up as well. Some of the new people who've not performed for us before include Bridget Kibbe, who has been called the Yo-Yo Ma of the Harp. Oh and, my. Yeah, I'm really excited about this program. We're calling it the Enchanted Harp and Atlanta favorite flutist Christina Smith and favorite cellist Sheree Kruger will join her for a really cool program of some chamber music and she'll play some solo harp as well. also got a, another really cool program, which has become one of my favorites. We've done a couple of iterations of it called Sibling Rivalry. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to mention that family is integral to your programming in Atlanta with the Emory Chamber Music Society. How does this carry over to the music in Highlands and Cashier? Tell us about your sibling rivalry. <laughs> Absolutely. This is one of the most fun programs I've ever put together, both for the musicians and the audiences. Some of you listening may have heard one of our programs here in town with Helen Kim and her brother Michael and David Kushran and his sister Julie and my sister Kate and myself, three pairs of brother and sister siblings who are all violinists and pianists. So it works out perfectly well. And we've chosen repertoire that's just a blast. 
But for Highlands, we're doing something a little bit different. We are replacing one of the sibling pairs with a different sibling pair. Music does seem to run in families. And we'll have Zul Bailey, the great Grammy Award-winning cellist, who's one of the most dynamic presences on stage that you'll ever hear. His sister, Allison Bailey, is a violinist and violist. So we'll have the Baileys, the Kims, and the Ransoms, all uh, trading barbs between ourselves and between the two pairs of siblings as well. And it's just going to be great, great fun. We certainly do. Funny you should mention that, Lois Reitzes. <laughs> we love our family concerts. We have a, a whole horde of wonderful little children that come to listen. And I always try and plan them so that they're designed for younger listeners, but really, really fun and enjoyable for audiences of all ages. And this year, we're going to be presenting Ferdinand the Bull, the wonderful story of Ferdinand with a solo violin and narrator as well as uh, the all-time favorite, Peter and the Wolf. And our narrator is none other than the voice of classical music in Atlanta, Lois Reitzes. Oh, you make me blush through my microphone, but it, it, is, it is such a joy to participate in these family concerts and see the expressions on children's faces some of them want to pet the instruments after the concert. And also, will to see the number of adults who show up just because they enjoy the repertoire. Exactly. And they really do work whether you're two years old or 102. So talk about a grand finale. Four seasons aren't enough. How do you manage eight? <laughs> yes, every year we close the festival with a final gala. And it's a, a concert of about an hour and 15 minutes or so, followed by a wonderful dinner for the entire audience and all the musicians. And this year, something extra special for our 40th anniversary. As you say, four seasons aren't enough. We're doing the eight seasons. Yeah, which... forget the four. No, don't forget <laughs> them. They're too marvelous. How are you pulling off eight seasons in one program? So we have the Festival Chamber Orchestra, and David Kusheron, the brilliant young concertmaster of the Atlanta Symphony, will join us as soloist in the Vivaldi Four Seasons. with Piazzolla's Four Seasons of Buenos Aires, these incredibly beautiful, exciting, and very sultry pieces in a, a great arrangement for piano trio. And we have the Eroica Trio joining us. They are a longtime festival favorite and uh, are called the most sought after piano trio in the world. And if you've ever heard them, you know why. makes me want to spend all six weeks 
in Highlands and Cashers. I wish it were possible. Thank you so very much. And again, congratulations on turning 40. Thank you. You only turned 40 once, they say. <laughs> Will Ransom is artistic director of the Highlands Cashers Chamber Music Festival, celebrating its 40th season. The events begin Monday, July 5th, and run through August 8th. Many of the fantastic musicians playing at the festival began their music journeys at an early age. Some even in the Youth Symphony. The educators at the Metro Youth Symphony Orchestras of Atlanta, also called MISO, take great pride in supporting their students regardless of where their aspirations lie. Last year, I spoke with MISO's artistic director, Catherine Hutnall, and executive director, Barbara Seacrest. Here, Hudnall discusses what she's enjoyed most about teaching young musicians. I enjoy most making music with students, with kids. That's the joy, is getting them to a point where they can actually perform something that perhaps they didn't think they could originally and have fun doing it and just do a great job. Is part of your intention to groom these students to think about entering college as music majors? Oh, absolutely. Um, It's not necessarily my expectation, but I want to, and I feel like it is our job as music educators to support the students wherever their aspirations lie, whether that is to become an audience member later, to be a music minor and major in medicine or science or, you know, just whatever else. If they are considering entering the music field, I want to support them there as well. Barbara Seacrest, you also have an impressive resume filled with achievements. I imagine that working with middle school students is a (laughs) dynamic endeavor. Yes, How do you approach teaching middle school age students orchestral works that keeps them engaged as well as challenged? Well, the first thing I'd say is that, first of all, I taught for 12 years, and the only level I ever taught was middle school. So that's what I'm familiar with, and it feels like home to me. You start them from the very first day of screeching and scratching in their (laughs) string instruments. And by the time they leave me as eighth graders, my goal is that they can really play and to prepare them to move into high school. And we have a large percentage of the children that I taught as middle school students did go on to high school. And, you know, it was interesting, your question to Kathy about what we're training them for You know, I'd always heard so many people say, well, you know, just teach them to be good musicians and good appreciators. And what happens after middle school, you know, you're probably not going to know too much about it because the high school people take it from that level and move them on to the high school level. But it took me a few years before I realized, you know, what an impact the middle school orchestra program and band programs have on them for where they might go. Because if you do your job right then you're going to have a lot of students who are just so passionate about playing that instrument that they go on to things that you just had no idea. In fact, I probably have been teaching maybe five years or five or six years when one of my students came back to me to tell me that she was going to be a music ed major. And I, I went, huh, because this was not a student that I'd actually seen that down the road for her. But she loved it and and stuck with it. And now, you know, now I see so many of my students um, who are really succeeding and going great guns. Executive Director Barbara Seacrest and Artistic Director Catherine Hutnall from the Metro Youth Symphony Orchestras of Atlanta. You can hear that entire interview on our website, wabe.org.
org slash city lights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Happy birthday to the United States of America. This weekend, many of our metro Atlanta communities will celebrate the July 4th holiday with parades, food, music, and of course, fireworks. Here to share details on some of our area's festivities is City Lights festive senior producer herself, Kim Drobes. Hi, Lois. Well, let's start with what's not happening this year, Kim. Oh, that's a very good point. So it's not like the universal cancellations of 2020, but it's important to note that two of our city's most infamous extravaganzas Mm -hmm. will not be happening this year. Both the annual fireworks display at Lenox and the yearly show at Centennial Olympic Park are indeed canceled. But fear not, we got other stuff. Well, for example... For example, you know how Atlanta's just made up of a bunch of tiny communities that are kind of woven together, and then we have this magical city in the middle? Each one of these communities is doing something. So the main idea to take away this year would be just stay local. Does that mean I can stay indoors where it's air conditioned too? (laughs) In my house? That's very local. I'm going to go with yes. I got something for you coming up. Oh, good. But... If you are the type of person that is, you're fully vaccinated, you're ready to be around a crowd, there are two events that are very large gatherings, and they both have very large parades. They actually both advertise that they are expecting close to twenty to 30,000 people. So if that's your jam and you're into it, consider heading out to Marietta or Dunwoody or... You can do both because Marietta's Freedom Parade is happening on Saturday, July 3rd, and Dunwoody's 4th of July Parade is happening on Monday the 5th. But I got something for you too, though, Lois. Do tell, because I will be comfortably situated indoors, seated, while my husband and so many thousands of Atlantans will be running in that two-day Peachtree Road Race this year. Oh my gosh, that's going to be crazy. People are so ready for that race. They missed it so much last year. Yeah, well, what can I do indoors and see that? I think you get the most adorable option. The city of Douglasville is hosting a July 4th shoebox parade, virtually. What is a shoebox parade? Do the shoes march and the boxes, are they the floats with little wheels on them? That would be equally adorable, although I don't know about the shoe marching part, but you nailed it (laughs) with the floats. So people make floats out of shoeboxes and about 50 different community members submitted floats and they're going to put on a virtual parade via Facebook. And you can check it out if you go to their Facebook page. I should also mention at this point, please don't worry about writing anything down, especially if you're driving. We'll have everything listed for you on our website later on. Oh, good. What about some other daytime recommendations for families, kids with parents or grandparents? Yeah, if you're looking for a full day affair, I've got a few options for you, starting with the new Black Wall Street Market near Stonecrest Mall. Lois, have you heard of this development? 
I have not, but it sounds intriguing. It's being created by a developer named Lester Bill Allen, and he aims to imitate the development model that's made Pont City Market or Crog Street Market so successful. But his mission is to increase the size and number of minority and women-owned businesses. So he's looking for about a total of 100 little shopkeepers to eventually take home in the new Black Wall Street market. And in an effort to get people to learn more about it and start supporting it while they continue to put the final touches on it, they're having a little festival on the 3rd and the 4th, starting at 11 a.m., I think running through 8 p.m. And they're advertising food, vendors, entertainment, which I hope means music. And I think it's a great reason to check out what is going to end up becoming a wonderful addition to our metro area. Oh, it sounds great. Other than that, other daytime events, especially if you have kids, if you're in the Tucker area, Tucker's Parks and Rec Department is hosting a free annual 4th of July pool party. And it's happening starting at noon, running to about four, and they're advertising music hot dogs, and my favorite thing, contests, which I'm a little bit obsessed with. So they're having a watermelon eating contest as well as a cannonball contest. Wait, you have to eat cannonballs? (laughs) Yes. Yes, you do. I hope they're chocolate. (laughs) No, it's a pool party. That's the jump in the pool. Yes, make the biggest splash would be the goal. But I do like the concept of eating chocolate cannibals. Of course. Now, there's something going on in Kennesaw as well. We're covering lots of different points in the metro area. It's true. It was a little hard pressed to find things actually within our city limits. But you happen to live in the Kennesaw area, they're doing a salute to America all day festival starting at noon, they're advertising two different stages with a ton of live music, as well as inflatable amusements, which I can only assume means bounce houses. (laughs) And they're going to have mechanical rides for kids and face painting. So if you're looking for an all-day place just to plop down and enjoy your time with your family, that might be a great opportunity. And that one's happening on Saturday, July 3rd. Okay. Let's talk about fireworks. I love the colors and looking at the displays from afar. But I've always been a little bit anxious about problems with things catching fire or people getting hurt too close to them. So it seems like a good idea to stick with the professionals. I think that's a really valid point. And I, I find fireworks to be a little polarizing. A lot of people have problems with the noise. I know a lot of animals have problems with the noise and people get a little freaked out. I know little trembly dogs and stuff. But as someone who's actually taken a firework to the arm before, I I, I did. I did. How brave are you? Wait, what Uh, kind? Like a like a firecracker? How small? A very very small one. Pretty small. So once upon a time, when my family had first moved here from New Jersey, I was probably about thirteen. And we went to Stone Mountain, which, you know, always has the laser show and then fireworks afterwards. And there was a traffic jam on the way out that was so bad that everyone that was trying to leave the park got stuck there for about three hours. And during that time that everyone was stuck in their cars, people started shooting off their own little fireworks. And that's how I ended up with one right on my left shoulder. Well, when our kids were little, there was a display not far from where we live and um, we were very excited to take them and as soon as it started they burst into hysterics wanting to go home and ears covered and I, I understand why the explosions can scare little kids and certainly upset pets, especially dogs. So if you have children who are reticent (laughs) or pets who tremble at the sound, 
do remember to take note of that before the fireworks begin. Kim, you were talking about the topic of fireworks being polarizing. Had a fascinating conversation with a friend just the other night who is Chinese. She was born and raised in Shanghai. And she was saying how lame she thinks American fireworks are. And I said, well, what does this have to do with, you know, some national historic pride? Because I know the Chinese invented fireworks and gunpowder. And she said, oh, no, it's not that. It's just that you have pretty colors and, you know, what look like starbursts that are quite lovely. But she said, in China, our fireworks display figures of animals and people and even the characters of the alphabet. And I thought, well, once again, we've got quite a ways to go. But (laughs) imagine looking up in the sky to see those creations. It is next level stuff in China. And I I hate for us to get all competitive on the 4th of July with China, but they also have a native that happens to be a world world-famous artist, and he uses the medium of fireworks. His name is Sai Guar Chiang. I apologize if I did not enunciate that correctly. Um, He lives, I think, in lower Manhattan now. But if anybody wants to look his stuff up, it's amazing. And it really makes you understand what your friend was saying. So not only are there figures that are exploding in the sky, but it's also a different type of explosion where the cloud almost looks like someone's throwing like a a smoky color up in the air. It's really just stunning. And he did a piece of work that exhibited in France in 2020 that we'll, we'll put a link to on our website so people can see it online. It is Truly, truly gorgeous. Oh, Kim, thank you for bringing that to our attention. So where are the fireworks this year? Well, first of all, most of the events previously mentioned are having big firework displays at night. But also, there is Red, White, and Boom in Norcross. (laughs) The historic downtown area is celebrating Independence Day on July 3rd. And they're starting their festivities around 5 p.m. They're also advertising bounce houses and face painting. And then they're gearing up for quite a large fireworks display in the evening. And then if you're not quite ready to be around a large group of people, head over to the city of Decatur because they are doing their annual fireworks display in a very socially distant way. They're doing it on Sunday the 4th, beginning at about 9 p.m. And they're setting off their fireworks from the community parking garage that's in downtown Decatur. And they're just encouraging people to be at a safe distance, be wherever you want to be. There's no real group gathering area to watch them but most residents will probably be able to see them from the comfort of their own homes. And then lastly, I can't not mention Stone Mountain, right? Right. Because first of all, I took a firework to the arm there once. And second of all, they still do this. They do it every year and they run through the fifth. And every night during that time after the laser show, they do an incredible fireworks finale. All right. Well, always sparkling in her own right our city light senior producer (laughs) kim droves you're colorful too thank you so much this has been great and if you want to revisit any of these suggestions you just heard us discuss head over to our website wabe.org org slash city lights we'll have a recap for you you're listening to wabe atlanta's choice for npr this is city lights on wabe i'm lois reitzes thank you for listening we're going to listen back to a city light segment that's become a july 4th holiday tradition 
the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times food writer Kim Severson joined me a few years back to discuss all American treats we enjoy eating on Independence Day. That led to a discussion of the paper's critically important story on hot dogs. I was not out to grill anyone, so to speak. Here, Kim shares why the quintessentially American food product, by way of Europe, is seemingly synonymous with American culture, and especially the 4th of July. Well, you have to think uh, about every simple thing that you want to eat when it's hot outside and that's easy to eat. And a, and a hot dog is certainly that. And, you know, so much of the food we eat goes back to the big world fairs of the of the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s, the ice cream cone, uh, the hot dog, uh, the idea of putting meat on a bun so people could walk around. Mm-hmm. All of that comes. It's kind of this great Americana um, nostalgic food that yeah, we all who grew needs up utensils? with. utensils? Who needs utensils? Who needs fancy foams? Who needs, you know, we have the hot dog and the ice cream cone. And really, the 4th of July is the best time to just get your patriotic on. And I think a lot of us who are cooks and spend a lot of time uh, looking um, globally for food these days and looking to um, improve our culinary skills and 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 do uh, fancier food and, and food with new flavor profiles, this is the day we get to just let our hair down and go full America, uh, which is why I love it. And I also think it's a day that you want something simple. You know, you... There are. This is green egg. We know we're in green egg country. We know there are many people who will spend many hours with their green egg. But I think you can go simple. You can heat up a grill. You can heat up a gas grill and not feel guilty for all you purists. And do something simple. This is why a hot dog is great. Hot dogs, hamburgers, something simple on the grill. Now with hot dogs, um, you know we did do this taste. We didn't, but my colleagues in New York City at the mothership. Uh, did a tasting of hot dogs, and they kept it specific to beef because New York is a beef hot dog town. Okay. I have a little bit of a problem with, um, not with your colleagues, Mm -hmm. but um, in the article, um, I think Melissa Clark? Yes, she's one of our our great food writers at NYT. She's marvelous. Yeah. She mentioned something about sticking to all beef. Right. But, and she said that's one reason it, it, they excluded Vienna. Well, okay. Is that a personal favor? I see you're, you're rolling up your sleeves over there, Lois. Okay. What, uh, Kim, bring it. New York is my happy place. It's its own universe. And, you know, Manhattan's my favorite island getaway. I think New York is the center of the universe, if not its own universe. So does New York, by the way. Of course. (laughs) But as a born and raised Chicagoan. Oh, here we go. Okay. Okay, here we go. There, There is a reason why Chicagoans get annoyed and become so annoying you know, and they're as, as annoying to, as a Chicagoan can become. Well, when they, well, you know, ask them about New York, and this is where it all comes out. And there is no acknowledgement of Chicago hot dogs or Vienna beef in there. Now, Chicago, in no ranking order, there, there's quite a legacy. I, I have a top ten, but I'll limit it to five. Okay, give it to me. Chicago Symphony. Art Institute of Chicago, Second City, Chicago Pizza, and Chicago Hot Dogs. Oh, my God. Chicago Pizza? We've got to save that for another show because we can have a smackdown over Chicago Pizza, which is really lasagna, in my opinion. However. Let's not go there. However, I will give you. I never met a pizza I didn't like, by the way. I will give you the Chicago Hot Dog, which I love for several reasons, but a lot of it is the way they run it through the garden with the sport peppers and the slice of pickle and the shake of celery salt. I have to agree with you that the Chicago-style hot dog, I, I, I agree, is a delicious and probably superior to the street water dog in New York. And there I've said it, and I hope I don't lose my job. Okay. I appreciate that because I firmly believe that if Proust had grown up 
in Chicago instead of Paris, we would not know about the Madeleine, and he would have been writing about Chicago hot dogs. You know, when you politely invited me on the show to talk about hot dogs, I did not realize (laughs) I was going to get sandbagged with the Chicago hot dog. I'm sorry, but... (laughs) There was there was a hot dog summit yesterday. Were you aware of this at Ellis Island, no less? And was the Chicago hot dog represented? Yes. Okay. Along okay, but let's go on with this because there were many interesting findings um, in those several hot dogs that were sampled in this study. And surprisingly, it was not the grass-fed Happy Meat hot dogs that um, the teen necessarily chose. No, it was not the hot dog from the cow that had been read Montessori stories. And, you know, it was. Um, they and grew actually up listening right, to, NPR. to NPR, right? Um, uh, no, it was a Welshire Farms premium, all-natural, uncured beef. Frank, which won the taste test, which I found really interesting. Uh, your friend Melissa Clark's called it smoky and herby and even asked, is it fancy? So that was interesting. Now, my kind of go-to home hot dog is the next one that won, which is the Hebrew National Kosher Beef Frank. My partner's Jewish. I feel like that's a little nod to the culture there. So, But it is a great hot dog in part because it um, it's the fat content is high enough. And that's the thing with a hot dog. Uh, you want to have enough fat content so that when it's on the bun and and it has to be it has to the the ratio of bun to meat has to be correct and it has to have enough juiciness so the bun gets just a little bit moist with the fat not overly done but just enough you know so all those things really I think matter when it comes to a hot dog in Chicago they steam the buns I know those soft beautiful poppy seed buns I I listen I'm thinking about it right now and now in in Atlanta is there a place to get a good Chicago style hot dog not that I know of. okay your house we're all coming over <laughs> I so. love it <laughs> Um, but, you know, hot dogs are not the only thing you can put on a grill and not the only thing you want to eat on this most patriotic of holidays that's coming up. And I think this year, more than ever, we all need to love up our country, whatever side you're on, wherever you are. I think it's time to go full Americana. Yes, because patriotism is not nationalism. No, it's not. And it can be delicious. Absolutely. This is my theory. So, so with the United States as such a diverse nation— imbued with all these marvelous cultures. Um, All these people bring their cuisines to the holiday. What are some of the most interesting or perhaps intersectional uh, 4th of July meals you've encountered as a food writer? Well, the thing about um, uh, meals like Thanksgiving or 4th of July, my experience of people who have immigrated from other countries, they really want to try to Uh, get to the core of this American holiday. And so with Thanksgiving, for example, you will have people who are doing, uh, you know, kind of a uh, Vietnamese-style stuffing in a turkey, or you will have someone trying to do a a Chinese-style barbecue turkey, or you will have Persian rice Mm. with turkey as the meat. Like, there's this very fun amalgam of cultures that happen with American holidays. Um, But, you know, putting uh, putting meat on a a heat source, putting meat on live fire, putting meat on a grill is an incredibly universal thing. And so I think you would find people cooking... um, you know, I mean, I you know, Slovakia, things on a skewer, any kind of meat um, you find happening. But uh, consistently, uh, watermelon is is an, uh, is such an American Fourth of July treat and one that, you know, translates to all kinds of cultures, particularly people who come from hotter parts of the world, from South India, from other parts of the country, you know, that, that hot, um, steamy summer heat and that cold watermelon. Mm. And I would encourage people... Because, you know, you want things simple on 4th of July because it is a holiday. You don't want to spend all your time in the kitchen. But there's a thing in the restaurant business where they talk about make it nice. So there's a way you can do simple things but make it nice and and have a good time. And one of the things I think is great is if you can find an old-fashioned rattlesnake watermelon, one of the old, long watermelons with seeds in it. And if you can chill it somehow in a cooler and cut big slices of that and encourage people to have an old-fashioned watermelon seed spitting contest, (laughs) you will have a great moment 
of Americana and nostalgia. How great. If you've just tuned in, this is City Lights. Our guest today is the author and New York Times food writer Kim Severson. This is the ideal time to talk about summer food and outdoor fare. Today's New York Times has a great summer food issue. Kim's been giving us highlights and we should mention her own full-page article on campsite cooking. Who knew? Oh, let me tell you, the food revolution has now uh, made its way onto the trails uh, in the backcountry of America. Um, I, I was started out researching the story on camping food and backpacking food, and uh, I, it, when I came upon a $60 titanium camping cup, I knew... <laughs> That the universe had shifted in some significant way. You mean the pioneers didn't have those? No, apparently they did not. They did not do French press, fresh ground French press coffee uh, at ten thousand feet. So it's a it's a fascinating world, um, camp food. But you know, it makes sense. You have this Instagram culture we're in. People want to share really beautiful pictures of their food, uh, and then you have. Um, uh, you know, the foodie revolution, people are cooking better, the ingredients we have are better, we're a nation of better cooks. Uh, and and in the world in which we're all on a, in this digital reality, the hunger to get outdoors, a hunger for more analog, the van life movement, this idea, all of those have come together in a giant mashup that has produced uh, incredible food on the nation's trails. I love how you um, bring out in the article that there has been an increase in uh, visits to national parks, to our marvelous national parks in the past three years. Yeah, camping is, is really going up. It's, it's, it's fantastic, in well, my opinion. Well, I, I, I would just beg to say that um, you can visit the national parks without sleeping outdoors. Now, Lois, are, are you not a camper? I, I, I love the outdoors. Um, no, I am not a camper because I think if they God, have these nice things called hotels, right? Well, if God meant for us to sleep outside, she, they would not have invented mattresses <laughs> and roofs over our heads. But the magnificence of the national parks, um, state parks, and Food to complement the scenery is what you bring out so beautifully here. Yeah, people talk about why, why shouldn't your food be as lovely as the view? Yeah. Um, and it's really not terribly difficult, I think, to make a good meal outdoors. Uh, there's so much prep you can do ahead of time. Uh, and it's just a matter of organization. You know, you can if you can cook a good meal at home, you can do it uh, outdoors. A lot of the tricks, you know, are um, making sure that you keep food cold um, and you plan out if you're out for a couple, two, three days. Now, they have these amazing coolers out now that can keep things, if you freeze something, can keep it cold for seven or eight or ten days. And so the technology of a lot of things that we're using to cook outdoors has improved uh, tremendously. But where do those fall in terms of the carbon footprint? Do We don't want to know. Well, here's the thing. If, you, um, uh, if you're a car camper and you're loading up your car with things, you may not be thinking about carbon footprint as much as the backpackers, which is a whole separate thing. These are people who are so desperate to save grams that they will cut off the backs of their spoons because so, it's going to weigh a little bit more in their pack. So those folks who are really going out with the food on their back are thinking very much about carbon footprint and um, you know packing everything in and out. And so they've taken to dehydrating their own food from their CSAs or... Whole Foods, as opposed to buying the kind of, we taste tested a bunch of the freeze dried food, and and it's it's honestly terrible. Although people assure <laughs> me that after you've hiked for twelve hours, anything tastes good. But uh, you know, there is I think there's an environmental consciousness to this. You stumped me on whether a Yeti cooler has a 
carbon footprint. So I'm, I, I didn't I'll get back to, to you on that. that. But, um, you know, I, I always loved M&Ms and the trail mix. That, yeah. And see. yet here you mention a bolognese. I mean, how gorgeous. Right, where people take a, gra- a grass-fed beef. And this is like if you imagine backpacking. So you're hiking with this on your back. And you they take uh, gra- grass-fed beef and breadcrumbs, which helps it dehydrate, puts it in their little home dehydrator. And you get these crumbles. And then they make a sauce, a tomato sauce, and dry it on the dehydrator into kind of a tomato leather. Uh, and then might take a little bit of fresh garlic or even pack mm. in a little bit of fresh mushrooms and get out on the trail with your little hot, uh, uh, you know, white gas stove or whatever backpack stove you're doing and uh, saute a little bit of that that garlic and that. And then you, you take the ground beef and the tomatoes and you put it in hot boiling water and let it rehydrate and mix it up and there you are in the middle of the California Sierra eating bolognese on the trail. I thought it was fabulous. I wanted to go on a, on a trip with them, but yeah. they, they didn't invite me. So, Well, they ought to. Are, are you a camper? You know, I grew up camping. I had a family, five kids, and my dad's one salary, and, and uh, he was an outdoorsman. And so our summer vacations were camping. And I can remember my mother would be on a, like, would camp on a beach for a week. How she even kept the sand out of the butter I will never know but it was one of the great (laughs) mysteries of my childhood but yeah I grew up camping a lot and I lived in Alaska for six or seven years when worked for the newspaper up there and you certainly um just being in Alaska is kind of camping even you know and so I, I I do like the outdoors now here in Atlanta um I've only sort of been little we've gone to Girl Scout camp with my daughter Santa brought her a tent for Christmas, so Ooh. we're really working on getting back into the. But my partner again is like you. There's uh, there's these nice things called the Four Seasons, and that would be a nice place to camp. So, you know, we have a little bit of a cultural clash happening well, in the household. It makes for excitement and enjoying each other's right. preferences. Right. Author Kim Severson is a food writer for the New York Times. She's based in Atlanta. Lucky for us. Kim, we savor your thoughts about food and beyond. Thank you again for brightening city lights. Oh, it's my pleasure. And have some watermelon on the 4th of July. I'll think of you. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart joins us with a playlist to evoke our patriotic spirit this Independence Day weekend. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.